morning. That was crazy. Good morning. No, no, no. We're going to try one more time. Good morning. Come on down. Find a seat. Por favor. Welcome to Wooden Life Center. Um, it's good to be with you guys here today. It's good to be in the house of the Lord about to worship. A few announcements. Um, we have a, we don't have our fearless leader here today. He's not here today. He's out of state. He's accepting his diploma. Um, he got his master's degree. Let's give a round of applause for Pastor. He has now told us we can refer to him as Master Pastor from now on. Entirely Master Pastor. Um, and I don't see envelopes out, but they're in the bulletin. Diane's going to come down and share a little bit about why you got an envelope in your bulletin and what's going on with that connected with past Master Pastor. As Chris mentioned, we have now a Master Pastor. <laughs> and keep in mind that he has actually gotten two Master Degrees in the last five years. While being a husband, a dad to four kiddos, and pastoring this church. So that's pretty amazing. So what we would like to do today in support of his diligent sacrifice and success, the board has decided to do a love offering today to help defray the cost of the Troxels' graduation trip to Idaho. So in your bulletin, you should have a little envelope, and if not, we have some extras on the tables in the back, so raise your hand if you need one. And if you'd like to participate in it, please write graduation on that envelope, and then we're just going to put it in with the regular offering so we can bless our pastor. Also, if in case you missed it, there's a poster just out here in the foyer, and if you would please sign it, it's for pastor, just a keepsake for him so that we can just all bless him with that and just congratulate him for his success and his hard, hard work. <laughs> All right, just a couple more announcements. I don't know if Jake and Bethany Metcalf are here today, but our new associates are moved in, a uh, new associate pastor, and so we're going to have a, a welcome potluck in two weeks, May 20th, so be sure to stay after for that. I think there's instructions here on how you can help with that, what dishes to bring. Be sure to be there for that. That's also Graduate Sunday. We're going to uh, recognize and honor our graduates. Don't want to miss that. Um, and a lot of other announcements going on. Check your bulletin. We also like to keep the website updated, so be sure to check that out if you miss anything on this. So um, that's a great place to stay connected as well. Um, you could join me now. Everyone stand up, turn to someone else, shake a hand or two.
So absolutely everyone who's in authority here is gone today. So um, except for Jimmy. Um, so <laughs> the cap, the cats are definitely away. Um, I think I was chosen to lead worship today because I have the largest beard. That was evidently the requirement. Um, my name is Eric. Uh, for no one that's. If I haven't been introduced to you, I've been coming here for about a year and a half now. Um, and when everything went down this last weekend, Todd called me very nervously on Monday morning and said, do you lead worship? And I re reluctantly went, yes. So anyway, join with us in worship this morning, and today is your day.
is the
But you give us enough. You sustain us. Lord, we are thankful. And let us live from out of that. Let us be beacons of your light to the world we live in, Lord. That we can thank you by how we live, how we interact, how we love others. Let us be that bread for others. Let us be that light. thankful and we want to give from out of that Lord with our faith offerings let this be just a small piece of the blessings that you give us Lord I want to pray specifically for your mom's friend colon cancer that you know that whole situation you are a healer you are a father who cares 
position of peace by faith of healing. And then how much can't you confess? Lord, bless everyone in that situation, everyone around. Lean, come close, surround that person. Um, let Lynn be a, a light to her life. And let us, Lord, this week, as we go out, live your light. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, as, as Harvey has been previously mentioned, our grand spirit leader is not here. Um, but he asked me to fill in for him. And as you've heard me speak before, know I love getting to bring the, the word of the Lord to you. Um, actually, this last week has actually been a really interesting week for me. For any of you who were in church service with us last week, we, we heard an incredibly powerful is the only word I can use to describe it, but I feel like that even falls short of the, the story and the testimony that we heard last week um, from Delani Horton. And if you didn't get a chance to hear that, go find the podcast on our website and go listen to it and soak it in and just hear what she had to say because it, it will rock your world. It absolutely will. Um, just what she went through and the message that she was able to bring out of that. And I, I really took time this week to bring that back and to start to reflect on, you know, my own set of circumstances and where I'm at and, you know, all the different things that I'm having to deal with. And uh, the Spirit really started to move inside me this week to be like, you know, I, I am the God of America, but I'm also the God of Saudi Arabia and the God of Egypt and the God of Japan and the God of anywhere that you feel like you can go, I am the God. And what is absolutely astounding to me is as I was getting ready for this sermon, I was, you know, praying through it. I'm like, okay, Spirit, what, what word do you want me to bring? What do you want me to say this morning? So I started to get this ready, and I started kind of thinking in my own head, and I'm like, okay, the worship team plays Our God, and then they're in the next spots. And lo and behold, I show up this morning, and they're like, hey, Our God's the first song on the list. I'm like, yes. We're in a good way. So the word that I have to bring for you guys this morning actually is kind of keying in on this idea that there is no one like our God. There is no one greater than our God. There's nobody who does the things that he does. 
There are no other gods that can do the things that he can do. And so we're going to take actually a kind of in-depth look at this. Um, in, the, in the Sunday school class that I teach every morning right before church at 8.30, which if you haven't been yet, show up. It's awesome. We discuss really cool things. Um, we, we actually touch on this briefly. We looked at this very briefly. Um, but today we're going to look at the, the ten plagues of Egypt. And what's really interesting about the ten plagues of Egypt is most people know about them. Most people know, like, okay, this is the biblical time when God said, I'm going to deliver judgment upon the land of Egypt in the form of ten plagues. What most people don't know about them is that each one of the ten plagues actually had a very direct and specific purpose. And what I mean by that is each of the ten plagues that God delivered upon Egypt was actually an attack on a very specific Egyptian god. Um, as you can see, the, the slide up here is going to kind of be our roadmap for this morning. But each of these ten plagues was God saying, okay, the, the god of the Nile, which is going to be the first god that we talk about. Yeah, I'm stronger than that god. I have power, I have dominion over what he's supposed to rule over. And so we're going to kind of take a look at that. We're going to go through all of these different things. Um, and just as kind of a note before we dive into this, a lot of the comparisons that I'm going to be making actually come from a guy, his name is Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Um, and he, he did another sermon on this where he dives deeper into the spiritual warfare aspect of this. But a lot of the comparisons that he makes I'm going to be using here. So if you're like, hey, this comparison is really good, just know that wasn't on there. Um, but I, I do want us to run through these plagues one by one, and see what their purpose is. And hopefully by the end of this, your, your faith will be uplifted a little bit. Um, and you'll be able to see, you know, okay, God kind of really knows what he's doing um, a lot. And maybe if you've ever felt the place are just kind of haphazard, and God was just like, eh, locusts sound good, I'm going to send them. Um, that, that wasn't actually, um, God wasn't just kind of, you know, picking and choosing. He didn't draw up like that and have you be like, oh, that one's good. Yeah, maybe that one's good. They all have a very specific purpose in mind. Um, and hopefully you have as much fun with this as I did these times. I think I absolutely love this. Uh, if you want to read along with the scriptures that we're going to be reading along with, I'm not going to have them up on the screen this morning. But we're going to be starting in Exodus chapter 7. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn to that, um, we're going to end up going all the way through Exodus chapter 11. And I'm going to take just little snippets out as we talk about each of the plagues. Everybody good with that? Cool. All right. Well, let's start off. The very first plague that God delivered upon the land of Egypt, the Nile River was turned to blood. So let's read um, what happens here. Exodus chapter 7, verse 20. Here's what the book of Exodus records. It says, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh, and his officials struck, or in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials, and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water was changed into blood. Uh, there's an Egyptologist named Dr. Adams. And he once said that Egypt is the Nile. And without the Nile, that country would be right back inside of the desert. And it really wouldn't be fit for human habitation. But because of the Nile, Egypt really kind of became the, the breadbasket of the world. At one point, it was a very dominant world power. Um, and God had created it that way. But... In, instead of the blessing that God had intended for it to be, um, the Nile became something that these people had actually worshipped. And it's interesting to note that there were four sources of religion in the land of Egypt. And all four can be traced back to 
um, one monotheistic idea, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, you know, they're all traced back to there's this idea of there's one true living God. But there came a day when, though they knew God, they had their roots back in this idea, and they, glor- they decided not to glorify him as God. And they were not thankful, but they were vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Those are actually Paul's words out of Romans. Um, but they began to serve the thing that was created rather than the creator. They worshiped the Nile River. And the Nile is actually kind of representative of two different gods here. Um, the first god that the Nile is representative of is Osiris. Osiris is one of the big main Egyptian gods. If you've studied any of the Egyptian gods, all you know the name Osiris before. And the Nile is sacred to Osiris. Um, and you've probably seen, you know, different paintings of Osiris and the Nile, and the Nile is actually said to be Osiris's bloodstream, even, which is ironic. Um, but the, the other god that is very important here that God is really taking a shot at um, is the Egyptian god Hopi, as is set up there. And this is actually the way that the Egyptians depicted the Nile itself. This Hopi is the god that is meant to represent the Nile. Um, he's usually a fat man. I'm sorry if that's offensive to somebody, but he is. He's a fat dude. Um, and it's, that's really supposed to indicate the, the powers of nourishment and fertility. Um, because back in those days, if you were overweight, then that means that you had a lot of money and power to throw around. And so that's, um, that's what they're throwing out here. And the fertility of the land depended upon the Nile River overflowing every year. That's how they would get their water, and that's how they would water their crops. But here's the crazy thing. When the Nile turned to blood, that which was fertility became sterility. And that which was life became death. And so at the very beginning, at the very onset of the ten plagues, God said that that which is life is now turned to death. And the very lifeblood of Egypt itself turned into blood. And although this first plague had its effect, it didn't do anything to Pharaoh. He's like, okay, whatever. That's cool. So that's our first plague. Plague of Denial, becoming blood. The second plague, the plague of frogs. Um, we read about this one in Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Again, here's what Exodus records. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. Then I will team with frogs. They will come up into your place in your bedroom, and onto your bed, no thank you, and into the houses of your officials and on your people, and into your ovens and kneading troughs. And then it goes on to say, the frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. That's gross. I don't want frogs up in my bed. No thank you. But what's very interesting about this, and you have to kind of place yourself in the, in the mindset of an ancient Egyptian here, um, but the frog was actually a very beautiful icon for the Egyptians. And one of the most beautiful temples inside of Memphis, inside of Memphis, sorry, was actually the temple dedicated to Heket, um, who is the frog-headed goddess. Um, also up here says to be another goddess of fertility. And these, um, the Egyptians would create these idols, and they would create these very beautiful-looking idols. And... In Egypt, one of the idols that they worship was the frog-headed goddess Heket. Um, and so, again, frogs, naturally, were sacred to Heket, seeing that she also had a frog's head. Um, 
and it was an offense in Egypt to ever kill a frog. And all along the Nile, there were frogs. They were everywhere, but nobody killed them, nobody did anything to them, because again, it's a great offense, and they're sacred. And so imagine having frogs inside of your living room, and in your bedroom, and again, in your bed, no thank you, and frogs in your kitchen, and they're in your food, and they're in your bread oven, and you're not able to do anything to them because they're sacred, because you've grown up with them being sacred. And they're like, if I kill a frog, it would be a really bad way, but I really want to sleep, and I don't want to squish this thing. What are we going to do? And again, God, I, I think you see here, God has kind of a very interesting sense of humor. Um, and God wanted to show that the frog-headed goddess Hecate, again, had no power that these idols that they're worshiping have no power. This thing that is so sacred to them, God can say, go here, and it'll go there. And what's very interesting is at the very end of this plague, um, Pharaoh calls Moses to get rid of the frogs. Because Moses could touch the frogs. Moses could get rid of them. They're slaves. But Pharaoh couldn't. Pharaoh couldn't do anything about it. And so our second attack is against the, the goddess Hecate. The third plague. The third plague is the plague of lice. So let's read about this. Read about this in Exodus chapter 8, verse 16. Um, it's also called the plague of gnats. Here's what it says. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. Again, it's also sometimes translated as lice. Um, but this is very interesting because the Egyptians worshipped their earth god, and the earth god's name was Geb. Um, and lice, it was thought, were made out of the dust of the earth. And the root word for lice means to cover up or to nip or to pinch, um, which is a good description of lice, I think, as we understand them. And a, a leading zoologist has said that the, the mites from an enormous order whose leading function to a large extent is to play the scavenger. So these are scavengers. They're, you know, not very pleasant things to have. And you can well imagine... At this point in Egypt, the, the water has already turned into blood, and we're not super happy about that. And there are frogs all over the place, and we're also not super happy about that. Um, and now there are crowds of lice, or gnats, just bugs everywhere. The lice might eventually rid the land of the dead frogs, and could therefore also kind of be a blessing as well as a curse, but it's like, I don't want to deal with that. No thank you. But again, this is an attack on their, their earth god, the god Geb, those said to rule over the earth, rule over the land. What's interesting to note here is that this is the, the first plague that um, the Egyptian priests were actually not able to duplicate. You see, up to this point, um, Moses you know, did his staffing, water turned to blood, the Egyptian priests were like, hey, well, we can do that too, and they turned water into blood, so it appeared. And you have the second plague, the plague of frogs. The Egyptian priests were somehow able to do that as well. I don't even want to pretend to know how to do that. But the plague of lice could not be duplicated by the Egyptian magicians. And God is beginning to level his judgment against Egypt itself and against all life inside of Egypt. The fourth plague, the plague of flies. It brings swarms of flies, more accurately, beetles. Um, and as we have thought of them, it, with connection to the Egyptians... This is also known as a scarab. So let's read Exodus chapter 8, verse 24. Here's what this says. It says, The Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. Throughout the land, Egypt was ruined by the flies. 
So, okay, you can imagine flies or beetles or some kind of bug, whatever it is. We know most people here don't like bugs, just because people don't like bugs in general. But there are bugs everywhere at this point. There are flies, there are gnats, there are beetles. They're all over the place. And I'm sure that you've seen uh, pictures of golden scarabs found in the tombs of ancient Egypt, like in King Tut's tomb, for example. Even though he was a really young king, some even said to be third rate, uh, he had gold scarabs in his tomb. They were sacred to Ra, the sun god. Um, and the disc that symbolized him has been found inside of the tombs in many places throughout the land. However, the other main god, and the god that we're looking at specifically right now, is Kepri, who is the beetle god. Um, and they believe that inside of the beetle was eternal life. Again, another sacred animal to them, which is the reason they put gold scarabs in the tomb. It was evidence that they were going to live forever. Well, beetles in your tomb probably wouldn't bother you. That's great, but imagine them in bed with you. No thank you. There's a certain amount of humor inside of some of these judgments. And again, you can kind of see God is just like mm, taking pot shots at these Egyptian gods. You're saying like, oh, you're the god of beetles? Cool. How's it feel in bed? No. Um, this most sacred beetle actually became a curse to these people and a plague upon their land. The fifth plague. Um, the next plague affected the cattle of Egypt. Exodus chapter 9, verse 6 says this, And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Again, there's, there's a lot to unpack here, but Egypt has been called the land of Zultry. And I heard a story once about somebody who took a tour group out to the pyramids. And um, as, they're, as they're touring around, they were asked if they saw the mummies of bulls, like cows, that had been mummified. And they're like, no, we didn't see that. And the Egyptian tour guide said, well, you missed one of the most important things. And so several who were in their group went back, actually, to go and get pictures of them. Um, and the person I heard the story from wasn't super interested in going to go and take pictures of mummified bull carcasses. I can't say that I blame them. Um, but there are literally hundreds of them. And they're reverently entombed inside of these sarcophagi. And archaeologists have been unearthing them for a while. What does all this mean? Well, it means that simply um, there are two gods here. That, again, that God is directly attacking. God is directly saying, this God has no power. Um, the first one is Apis, the black bull, and he's worshipped inside of Egypt. And the second largest temple that Egypt ever built, again, located in Memphis, was worshipping the black bull Apis. Um, the second god that is being attacked here is also um, Hathor, which I believe is the one up here, which is the goddess of love and protection. And if, if you'll remember with me, after the Exodus event, when the Egyptians have tried to chase the Israelites, and they've crossed the Red Sea, and they're at Mount Sinai, and they're like, yay, we did it, we made it. Moses goes up to go get the Ten Commandments, and they're like, well, Moses is gone, what are we going to do? And Aaron's like, let's make a golden calf. This is kind of where we're seeing that um, same idea come from. There's this idea, you know, that the, the bull's supposed to offer protection and livestock. And God, again, previously inside of this says, no, this, this animal, these gods that you're worshiping have no power. And so what's interesting here is you might say that the Egyptians had at this time the worship of what was a sick cow, a diseased and dying bull. Because again, God is directly attacking that. And he is, he's leveling his judgment against the awful and frightful institution of idolatry that had such a hold on the Egyptian people as well as on the Israelites. 
Plague number six boils. Now God begins to close in on the people personally. Because you see, up to this point, the plagues have all just been an attack on the things around them. You had the Nile, you had the frogs, you had the livestock, you had the flies. But now God turns to these people directly and says, okay, now I'm coming for you. Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it in the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. Again, no thank you. For the very first time, again, with these plagues, God is touching a man as well as the animals with his judgment. He's afflicting man's physical body, and the priests who served in the Egyptian temples had to be clean. And without any type of breaking out or sickness or any of this kind of stuff, and suddenly this plague of boils comes upon them, and they're unclean, they're unfit to serve in the temples. And this probably would have brought a halt to all of the false worship in Egypt. Not only that, but this is a direct attack against the goddess Isis. Not the Middle Eastern Isis, but like the goddess Isis, um, who interestingly enough is sometimes represented as cow-headed. Um, but Isis is the goddess of fertility, and also sometimes considered the goddess of the air. She's the mythical daughter of Geb and Nut, who we're going to be talking about in just a second, um, and is the sister and wife of Osiris and mother of Horus. And it's said that the tears of Isis falling into the Nile River caused it to overflow and bring nourishment to the land. So Isis is in a very prominent place inside of Egypt. And the plague of boils is really directed directly at her. And you'll kind of start to see now as we go down the list of plagues that the gods are sort of intensifying in their importance and in their authority. And Isis is really where I hit that mark where I'm like, okay, these gods are really starting to get important now. But what's very interesting about all this is even though Pharaoh himself was affected with boils, he still refused to let Israel leave the land. And the scriptures record that his heart was hard. We move on to plague number seven, the plague of hail. Exodus chapter nine, verse 14 and we're going to jump to 18 right after that. Here's what it says. This time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. This is God speaking. And then verse 18. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Egypt, in case you didn't know, was a land of no rain, is a land of no rain. And in, um, in Cairo, there was an interview with a man, and they asked him, you know, how much rainfall they had. And he said, we had an inch last year, a whole inch in a year. Is that normal? Yes. Well, that's not much rain. He said, you ought to go up to the Nile. Rain up there is a phenomenon. They just don't have rain at all. And again, this, this plague here is directed at the goddess Nut the goddess of the sky, who is one of the oldest deities in the Egyptian pantheon. And this is the goddess who is sometimes depicted, if you've ever seen the sarcophagi, is depicted with the giant wings and is sitting like, they have the giant wings that's super stretched out. Um, this is a very important goddess here. And God is directly attacking them, saying, okay, you're goddess of the sky? Zero power. I'm bringing hail. And from this point on, the... So from this point past, 
Israel had also been being affected by the plagues to an extent. But from this point forward, the land of Goshen, the place where Israel was living, is completely and totally spared. God is going to start striking particularly at the Egyptians in an attempt to wake them up and shake them out of their false worship. But Pharaoh, the leader of these people, continues to harden his heart. Plague number seven. Then there was the judgment of locusts. This is a plague against the, the insect gods. Um, it's also going to be an attack against the Egyptian god Set. And the, the way that the Egyptians worshipped insects and birds is actually a pretty amazing thing when you come to think about it. No people have been more given over to their worship of animals and of insects than the Egyptians were. And sometimes, you know, people think that, okay, well, you know, there's, there's different tribes in Africa and stuff that worship bugs, that worship things like this. Um, but this kind of worship is nothing compared to the way that they did it in the land of Egypt. Um, in fact, evidence is kind of starting to point us towards this idea that this worship of insects, this worship of bugs especially, um, actually kind of like trickled down from Egypt into the rest of Africa. So if anybody ever asks, you can say, yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of where that came from. Let's take a look at this plague. It's in Exodus chapter 10, verse 12. Here's what it says. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over Egypt, so that locusts will swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. Because if you've ever been in a hailstorm, you know that hail has a tendency to destroy everything. And that's when insurance guys like Steve love to just, you know, be like, hey, insurance stuff. <laughs> but there's several interesting things revealed in this judgment of locusts. Um, notice that they didn't appear miraculously as some of the other plagues did. An east wind brought them from another place. And again, locusts were very prominent in Asian areas. So an east wind is, an east wind is bringing them into this place. Um... And the locust in scripture is actually a very powerful picture of judgment as well. A, a plague of locusts is quite potentially one of the worst things that man ever has to face. Uh, the prophet Joel describes the plague of locusts in the past, which is a matter of history, then predicts a judgment that is yet in the future for mankind. Uh, the book of Revelation as well also mentions a great plague of locusts that will come upon the earth. Again, these locusts probably had a greater effect upon the land of Egypt than many of the previous plagues had. Locusts are like little grasshopper-looking bug-like things. They're not pleasant. Um, but again, this is attack on the Egyptian god Set, who is the god of the storm, the god of disorder. Um, Egyptian mythology actually says that Set was um, put in place to help repel the serpent of chaos, which I think is very interesting. And you can only imagine what a swarm of locusts coming into coming into town and eating everything, what kind of chaos that would bring. Um, Set is, again, one of the very, very prominent gods inside of Egypt. And of the last three, um, he is, he's probably the one that I would compare closest to the devil. Um, because at one point in Egyptian mythology, Set actually goes and kills the god Osiris. And then Osiris is brought back by his wife, Isis. And then they conceive of a child whose name is Horus, and then Horus actually goes on a lifelong mission in order to kill Seth, who had killed his father previously. Um, so it's very, very interesting, but he's kind of the, the evil god, if you will. Um, but he's also said to repel chaos. And God here says, okay, you want to repel chaos? Have locusts. Have fun with that. The ninth plague. We come to the ninth judgment, which is judgment upon the sun god Ra. Darkness comes over the land of Egypt in the daytime, and God moves 
in with the darkness against the chief god that they worshipped. Again, Ra or Amun-Ra is probably one of those names where if you study Egypt at all, you've heard the name Ra before. He's a big deal. The sun disk is the most familiar symbol the Egyptians used. It's in all of their art. It honors the sun god Ra. And the plague of darkness shows the utter helplessness of this god. So let's take a look at this. Exodus chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. Here's what it says. It says, so Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move for about three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the place where they lived. This darkness was said to be so tangible that you could actually feel it. If you've ever been inside of darkness where you can actually feel it, that is not a fun place to be. Especially when one of your chief deities is said to be the god of the sun. At this time, Pharaoh is also abandoned. He had the opportunity to repent. He doesn't. And apparently, many of the Egyptian people had started to repent and been like, okay, the god of the Israelites is doing something over there. I don't want any part of whatever's going on over here. Um, and they're spared. But Pharaoh will not repent. From here on out, Moses will appear in front of him no more. And then we get to the last judgment, the death of the firstborn. The tenth judgment, again, is the last one. And God announces his people and the Egyptians that this will be the last. After this, he said, I'll take my people out. It's the death of the firstborn, not only of the firstborn of men, but the firstborn of everything. Here's what the book of Exodus records, chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. You will recall that way, way back at the beginning when God created Adam and Eve and put them inside of the garden, um, and they were allowed to do their things, they had a child. And God had said that the firstborn belonged to him. Again, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In fact, this is the reason that Eve named Cain. She said, I've gotten the man, the deliverer. He's God's man. Cain, even the firstborn, is God's. And from that day on, the firstborn always belonged to God. They were given to the service of God. And the firstborn in all pagan and heathen lands were set apart for service of the gods. So the firstborn is a really big deal, and I'm not just saying that because I'm the firstborn child. But in the land of Egypt, God here is proclaiming that these are, these are his. He's enacting a plague, and ultimately he is taking his attack, his final attack against Pharaoh, who's said to be the ultimate power inside of Egypt. And this is this is what God did. God reached out, and he took that which was his own. And it was his final word to the land of Egypt. And again, this being an attack on Pharaoh who's said to be a god himself. The man ruling over them. And Pharaoh is powerless to protect even his own firstborn. And at this, Pharaoh finally breaks and decides to let his people go. This is a remarkable story. Not just because God is bringing about plagues, and not just because, you know, there's miraculous water turning into blood, and there's hail coming down. Um, if you've ever seen the DreamWorks movie, Prince of Egypt, there's also, like, fire coming down inside of it. It's just total chaos. Um, it's awesome. If you haven't seen the movie, go watch it. It's a lot of fun. But 
we, we see that God here is bringing about these plagues as plagues of judgment. But what's also very interesting here is you see God proclaiming himself as greater than all of these different things. You see God is proclaiming himself as greater than the Nile. You see God is proclaiming himself as greater than the idols that these people worshipped, which in this case is frogs. You see God is proclaiming himself as greater than the sky. You see God is proclaiming himself as greater than the sun, the chief thing that they worshipped. You see God is proclaiming himself as greater than Pharaoh, who had the power to take somebody's life just like this. And God says, I am greater than all of those different things. And then he proves it. Not only to the Israelites who followed him, but to the Egyptians who had to be running in fear of him at this point. So now I can kind of start to guess the thoughts going through some of your head. You're like, okay, this is awesome. Really cool stuff. I'm really happy we had a little history lesson here. And we were able to say, you know, okay, God had this attack against the Egyptians here and against all this, and maybe your faith has been bolstered by it. That would be awesome if it was. But the real question is, is, what's the application? What do I get out of this? What does this mean? Well, I think this means a couple of different things for us this morning. The first one is that God is not ignorant of your context. He's not ignorant of your own circumstances. God just doesn't say like, oh, you know, there's, there's my child who's faithfully praying to me. I'm going to pull out of my little hat of tricks something and I'm just going to kind of throw it their way and hope that it sticks. God doesn't. Do that. God knows what you're inside of, and he knows so specifically what you're inside of, and he's so ready to prove himself as the God over everything that he'll do what it takes if you're willing to look, if you're willing to listen, if you're willing to wait on what he has. Again, God here is not just saying like, oh, you know, I'm in Ra. He's the God of the sun. Let's see. Um, uh, yeah, darkness kind of sounds good. He's like, no. If Amun Ra is the god of the sun, I'm going to prove that I'm more powerful than him by taking over the light. The light itself is mine. I control it. And God is not ignorant of your context. Going even deeper inside of that, the second point that we have from this is whatever is inside of your context, whatever thing you have that you say has so much power over me that I can't possibly get rid of it, or whatever thing you have inside of your life that is sucking up your time and your energy whatever it may be, just know that God has a plan to deal with it. Again, it's not just some plan that he's pulling out of a hat and saying like, okay, yeah, maybe that'll work. Well, God knows. He knows exactly what it is. He knows exactly what you need in order to be able to deal with it. The question is, will you lean into him? Will you look at what he's doing? The really cool thing about this last plague, the plague of the firstborn, um, and most people know this, but the Israelites were completely and totally spared from this plague as long as they did one thing. All they had to do was sacrifice a lamb, take its blood, and paint it over their doorposts. And the Spirit of God would actually pass over them, which is where we get the term Passover from. There's a whole lot more inside of that symbolically. But, you know, God is reaching out to these people, and he's saying, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to prove myself to you. I'm going to bring you out of the land, finally, after all these years. But are you willing to be obedient? Are you willing to follow what I have to say? Are you willing to commit your life to doing things my way? I'm not saying you have to do it perfect, because if you read through any of the rest of the Old Testament, you will realize that Israel is like faithful to God, not faithful to God, faithful to God, not faithful. Like they're they're so up and down. If it was like one of those little heart monitors, you'd be like, Israel is dying very very quickly. Their heart rate is ridiculous. 
But are you willing to commit yourself to being obedient to God? Are you willing to commit yourself to following after his ways? Are you willing to trust that he actually does have some kind of plan to take care of the things in your life? The things that may seem like God's. Because God does know your context. God does know where you're at. If you get nothing else from today, hopefully you leave with a sense of reverence of who God is, of the power, of the might that he displays. Perhaps maybe even you have a new sense of awe. And that song, Our God, or How Great Is Our God, you're able to leave with kind of a new sense of saying, how great is our God? How powerful is he? He controls the light. He controls the dark. Everything he controls. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, master of all things, master of time and space and light and darkness, master of all things inside of our own lives, I thank you for the opportunity to be in your presence this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to gather together with my brothers and sisters and to worship you. Not just for the things that you've done, but just for who that you are. As the one being who is truly worthy of worship. Lord, I thank you for being willing to enter into our lives. I thank you for understanding where we're coming from, for understanding our own individual context. And for saying, yeah, that, that thing that you think you might not be able to deal with, I got that. I got a plan for that. For that God that seems to be taking up too much time, whether it be work, whether it be whatever it is, you say, no, I've got a plan for that. Lord, I thank you for your power. I thank you for your might. I thank you for your wisdom in directing our lives. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you as one of your own. Jesus, I pray that you walk with us, that you bless us as we head out into the world. Continue to show us just how awesome, just how powerful you really are. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Cool. Thank you guys for going on that little excursus with me. Um, this was a lot of fun for me to research because uh, I knew about four or five of them just off the top of my head, and the other ones I'm like, I had no idea. So it was a lot of fun. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Um, if you'll stand with me, I want to say a quick blessing over you, and then we will get out of here. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I hope you guys have an amazing week. We'll see you next Sunday. Dancing on the